Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben off this cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. Kicking it off again. This is part three and a new series we've got running called We've Got History. Nick, it's all about 1905 to present day, covering the major milestones along the way. Uh, and again, if those people, if you out there just getting this episode for the first time, Nick, they need to go back. Listen to this in order. This whole series is in chronological order. So much was covered in part one and part two. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have Rick Lanville joining us on this, and he is basically from memory recounted the entire history of Chelsea Football Club. It's been <laughs> it's been tremendous. Uh, we wanted to take this part though, Rick, and cover off on the 90s. So we're gonna tee up on on some uh, some pieces there. We're gonna talk, Dan, about a fresh start with Matthew Harding. We're gonna talk about the rising tides of the 90s, CPL effect, and then kind of finish off on the Abramovich era beginning in 2003. It's going to be a blast. All right. Well, Dan, the honors go to you this time. We will let you kick this one off uh, again. As we is the poor listeners can't see. There's nothing better than having a rude hullet staring at me in this gray and orange course <laughs> kit from the it's '90s. Like what? What a way to get me jacked up to start this this part this series makes you <laughs> makes you thirsty for some blue mountains and a silver Whoa. bullet doesn't it <laughs> kind of you know kind of reminds me of nathan ake clearly this is the look he's going for as well <laughs> so rick i i think you know as nick pointed out one of the things we have to talk about as we head into this era is just the matthew harding what he means to chelsea supporters i think there are those who maybe have started following the club in the past two years three years five years maybe they've seen the massive banner come through. Maybe they've you know seen the the tweets on uh, the day or remembrance of maybe when he he passed tragically. You know, maybe you can kind of tee up how he got into the fold of Chelsea and then why he is so important and beloved by the club. And for those who maybe don't have the same exposure, yeah. Well, it's interesting because at the Everton game, uh. The Matthew Harding stand was singing Matthew Harding's Blue Army. Um, that's 24 years since he died. Uh, he died uh, coming back from a Bolton League Cup match in a helicopter crash. And it was sort of uh, it, it 
caused this mass outpouring amongst Chelsea supporters and also supporters of other clubs, empathy from other clubs after he tragically died. He was a director of the club. But more importantly than that, he came to represent the optimism of the supporter-led changes that were happening in football at that time, uh, like in the, uh, throughout the 1990s. And the contribution that, that uh, passionate people like Matthew, who had money, uh, could make to, to football. So we'd gone from the 80s with the hooliganism and the racism and things to an extent, and the kind of fighting on the terraces to all seater stadia. Uh, that was the big uh, change uh, of the 90s in English football that gone with the terraces where you could wander around and stand where you want and, uh, you know, next to a crush barrier and things. So everything was seating. Uh, you had to then, as a corollary to that, as uh, tickets, you, well, you sometimes it was like a military operation. You had to buy, you had to arrange with your mates so you could all sit together. So football had changed and supporters felt a little bit like the game was moving away from them until the likes of uh, Matthew Harding <clears throat> came in and showed that supporters could have a positive impact and steer the way that clubs were run. Now, how did this come about? Well, it happened that the 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 kind of the prompt, if you like, for all this was, as I said, was that there was a diktat in English football that all stadiums uh, in the top flight had to be all seater. So Chelsea needed to change. Stamford Bridge and uh, they needed investment because at the time as I, uh, I said in uh, part two that the the grounds on which Stamford Bridge stands have been sold off uh, the develop, developers the contractors that owned that uh, went out of business in 1992-93 and Chelsea were able to buy the pitch back so at that time uh, you had this coincidence of needing to redevelop the stand and suddenly owning the freehold and being able to redevelop, uh, you know, having the freedom to redevelop, but not quite yet having the cash uh, to build the new structures that were required. So a call was put out by Ken Bates, the club chairman, uh, for people to invest. Are there any wealthy supporters who could invest? And um, this young, uh, I think he was in his 40s, Matthew, in the early 90s, he'd made a fortune, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, from uh, working in reinsurance uh, in the city. So he's a very, very wealthy man, lifelong Chelsea supporter. Um, he'd... Uh, and he passed a message to Bates via an intermediary saying, um, I might be the only person in this room who's richer than you are, or words to that effect, <laughs> and suggesting that he might, uh, and so Bates followed that up, well, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, how much <laughs> are you talking about investing? And so uh, it's not true that these were gifts that uh, came from this, uh, the wealthy Mr. Harding, the the millionaire, uh, but it is true that he extended loans on favourable terms, and these enabled, for example, the North Stand to be built. Uh, that wouldn't have happened, uh, certainly not as readily, uh, had Matthew Harding not put his investment in. And as a result, he was given a direct. Uh, he made a director. He was given shares. Made a director. He was made vice chairman. A putative successor to. Uh, Ken Bates, although they, they fell out and that, that didn't actually come about. Um, but what it meant was that Matthew Harding, this bloke who used to stand in the shed, uh, had a foot in the ballroom, had a place in the ballroom. He got developed uh, at the same time. We, we made a brilliant decision, one of the best decisions we've ever made as a football club, to appoint Glenn Hoddle, uh, a stylish uh, midfielder who had worked in Monaco and learnt new methods of training and new methods of uh, nutrition 
um, and come back to England and trained with us in 1991 when he was recuperating, gone to work at Swindon. We'd liked what we'd seen in 1991. So when we needed to a, a new manager, we appointed him as a player manager. And that was a, an absolute masterstroke. And when we talk about the, the, the successful era uh, of Chelsea Football Club, this is when it started. This 93 to 95 was when it was the, the preliminary. And from 95 to uh, the present is really the modern era of Chelsea when we've been at this very successful and forward-thinking, progressive club. So 93, Glenn Hoddle's in there. He pals up with Matthew Harding. They become very friendly. Um, and with this kind of the loans that Matthew Harding's prepared to put into the club, suddenly ambitions can return to how they were uh, back in the sort of the 60s and 70s and, and right back to 1905. Suddenly we could think, hold on a minute, we can start buying players. I mean, I, I met Matthew. I used to meet him at, at, at games a lot. And he had some cranky ideas. For example, he used to joke that he didn't think women should be, be at football grounds. And we, we used to uh, disagree on that. I think he was joking, but he used to say it quite a lot. He used to love his Guinness. You'd often see him drinking in, uh, in uh, the pub beforehand. And he was always open to, uh, for, to a conversation. I spoke to him once and I said, what, what is it? What made you... What made you do that? Uh, give you know seven and a half million or whatever it was for the building of that stand. He said, "Who wouldn't do that for their club? <laughs> if you could afford it, who wouldn't do that for their club?" And I think that's what people saw in Matthew. People at Chelsea saw it. Supporters of Chelsea, but supporters of other clubs saw uh, as his profile grew. My God, this bloke's like rebuilding the the stand and he could be the next chairman and he's a lifelong supporter well ours isn't no our chairman isn't a lifelong supporter he's some kind of uh, manager uh, from somewhere or other that we don't think necessarily feels like we do people felt that matthew felt like they did and i think that was where uh, what, what he came to symbolize what he represented um now after he died in 1996 uh, the, the stand that he'd put the money up for was renamed the Matthew Harding stand, and it still is. But the greater contribution, the longer legacy, uh, happened a year earlier than that, in 1995, when uh, Matthew, Colin Hutchinson, Ken Bates and Glenn Hoddle, I, think, I don't think there are any others, uh, the morning after the FA Cup final, Everton and Man United, I think it was, I met in a hotel near near uh, Heathrow Airport and had a meeting where they planned the future Chelsea Football Club. And they called it, or Colin Hutchinson called it, the Marriott Accord, is what he said. But this is where they agreed <laughs> that Chelsea Football Club would become this, uh, would want to compete in Europe, and would want to buy the best players to exploit uh, the Bosman ruling, which meant that senior players could uh, move for free when their their contract ran out which was a you know a, quite a big thing at the time but basically what it meant was that with Matthew's money and with the clubs taking out loans as well they would have the ambition they would underwrite uh, success for Chelsea for the for the foreseeable future and out of that you have Rude Hullick coming in you have Mark Hughes coming in uh, you have, after that, Di Matteo, Zola, Viali. That all stems from 1995 uh, and that meeting and that hotel where they scoped out this hugely ambitious Chelsea Football Club. So I don't say it lightly, but that, for me, is when the modern Chelsea Football Club was born. And from 2003, when Roman Abramovich came in, he supercharged a revolution that was already taking place uh, and made it, took it onto another level. But the start of it was 1995 and Matthew Harding played a huge part in that. All right. Well, obviously, uh, you know, more, you know, a huge player in, in, in the history of Chelsea and, um, you know, Matthew Harding is remembered rightly so in such high regard and honor. 
Um, so, you know, I think we'll see more of him kind of in the next part, especially the kind of effects that he had on Chelsea throughout the 90s and even through today. So we are going to take a quick break. But after this, uh, great teams in the 90s. This is going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of names, you know, a lot of um, highlights and things that are going into it. So thank you to the sponsor for financially supporting the show. We will be right back. All right. Well, I mean, not to not to be too forward, but it's a little bit of party time going on, Dan. We've got a, <laughs> a little bit of excitement here in the 90s. You know, as, as, as uh, Rick just teed up, uh, the injection of cash, not only that, but energy and spirit and morale into the club. And the momentum is really starting to build. It is time to, um, you know, exploit the Bozeman clause, the deal. Let's sign some players. So... Rude Hullet, as was just name dropped, uh, was I don't know I guess would probably one of the the more popular signings we had Dan during during this time. Uh, that would make sense to me, and you know, I think this is this is when we you know we're a big money club now, Rick. This is when we can splash yeah. the cash. This is when we can sign some players, and and Hullet comes in and uh, you know gets the uh, luxury of not just being a player at some point, but also getting to be the uh, the player manager as well too, and. I think is is remembered extremely fondly by uh, supporters, and you know, you you also maybe met him. Um, I imagine more than one occasion. I did. In fact, I think I was one of the first pe- people to meet him after he'd signed for us. I was going into interview Colin Hutchinson at Stamford Bridge one day, and uh, I was waiting at reception, and Colin said, "I'll be down in a minute." He, uh, lift doors open. I go over to meet him. He walks out and he says, hello, Rick. I think there's someone else here that you might like to meet. And he stands aside and there's Rude Hullet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So I introduced, you know, like uh, one of those, I haven't been uh, caught short for words very often in my life, but that was that was one of them. Just shook his hands and said, well, I can't believe, I'm just so excited that you're here at my club and I'm, it's just amazing that you're, you're joining us. And uh, you know, he smiled and, and and we talked for a bit. And he's just so charismatic immediately. And I thought to myself, now this is a different era. This really is, this is a different Chelsea that we're going to be seeing. And that's, it proved that way. Glenn Hoddle in his first match said it was like watching a, a watching Hullet was like watching a, a grown man playing with toddlers because he seemed to be, uh, he seemed to be on a different plane as far as understanding the, the, the way the game unfolded was concerned. He was pointing, telling people what to do. Incredible presence uh, on the pitch. And again, suddenly, Chelsea was, uh, uh, the name of Chelsea was associated with Rude Hullet. It's already associated with a positive light for the first time in a while. Uh, people looked at that and thought, Rude Hullet, wow, things are happening there. People started to around the world start to pay attention again at this uh, this sleeping giant. And that's what you started to hear. The sleeping giant is awakening. Uh, will we get back to the glory days of, uh, of the 1970s and the, the mid 80s? And, um, you know, this, uh, that's what transpired. I mean, Hoddle played him very sensibly. Um, I should say that, uh, Rude Hullet as Hoddle's successor, I think, is the first democratically elected coach because when <laughs> Hoddle was leaving to go to uh, take over the England coaching job, the last match of the season against Blackburn, and the entire stadium was chanting, you can stick George Graham up your ass," because that was in the papers, that was the, the idea was that George Graham would take over from from Hoddle in 95 and um, <laughs> and, uh, and um, uh, you know of course what people wanted sorry 96 it was the ELAF uh, and uh, Chelsea fans weren't having that it was you can stick George Graham and it was Rudy 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 and in fact it was so emphatic that Ken Bates stood up but he had a seat in the, the East Stand the director's area and he stood up and he kind of acted like a conductor, waving his fingers 
sideways as if to conduct the uh, the choir singing Rudy, Rudy, and he can stick George Graham. He got the message, and Rude Hullet was made player manager. And of course, um, Rude Hullet galvanised these uh, these players. He was quite an aloof man, to be honest, in, in the dressing room. So I don't think he suffered that problem of that lots of people do switching from a player to a coach and having to kind of create some sort of uh, distance between you. I'm not one of the boys anymore. I'm, you know, he was always quite like that anyway. I remember him hearing a conversation where, when he was manager, he was saying, oh, uh, if he's injured, uh, if a senior player was injured, oh, we'll just play the boy. Who's the boy? <laughs> the coach was saying, who's the boy? You know, the boy. He didn't deal in detail. He dealt in kind of, you know, you know what I'm saying. Come on, you know, it'll be one. Oh, yeah, that's him. That's the one, you know, Paul Hughes or whoever it was. And, of course, he introduced this concept of sexy football, uh, uh, Ruth We were beating Derby 4-0, and he says afterwards, oh, I love to be sitting in the dugout and listening to the fans cheering on this sexy football. <laughs> you think, well, <laughs> Chelsea and sexy football was just a great match. Um, so it was a really uplifting period. Uh, we were, we had this really charismatic and intelligent, articulate uh, coach at the helm. We had these brilliant players like Gianfranco Zola, uh, Gianluca Viali, who was a, of course, a European Cup winner with Juventus, Roberto Di Matteo in midfield. Uh, a, a really, uh, apart from that, just a really great uh, team. And one thing about Di Matteo, I have to say, I don't know if anyone uh, remembers this, but when he's when he made his debut at Southampton, we still had brilliant uh, a brilliant remnant from earlier days, Dennis Wise, who is an extraordinary figure in all of this because he adapted to each each change and excelled and grew as a man and grew as a player on you know, each occasion. But he still had mischief in him. And there were two <laughs> things, two stories that I'll tell you about. One was when Dimitar made his debut. He didn't speak much English uh, at the time. And he was asked to sign uh, a kid's cap, uh, like a Southampton kid's cap. Um, and he asked Dennis Wise what he should put. And if I was to say that Dennis Wise told him to put uh, an expletive <laughs> on his cap and said it was what everyone said, well, you can imagine the horror on the the uh, the kid's face, well, the glee on the kid's face, and the and the horror on the parents' face, and that almost caused a diplomatic incident. Well, that was Dennis Wise. And the other one was, of course, that Dennis, when Gianluca Viali. Uh, came in again he another Italian he didn't speak much uh, English either but he was a really intelligent uh, and uh, full of verve and dynamism as a person and so he said look I want to learn what it's like to be a Londoner I want to I want to speak English like London people I don't want to speak it like uh, an academic and so he, Dennis Wise was his chosen Oh, teacher. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Dennis used to teach him all these these phrases that were slightly incorrect. And of course, the famous one is that um, when he was uh, uh, when he was he became he succeeded obviously uh, Rude Hullet as player manager and had great success. But there was an occasion where, in a press conference after a match, he was asked, "Oh, what?" Uh, well, what do you think about this then of some aspects? And he said, oh, well, when the fish are down, I think this will be... And so people think, what, the fish? When, when the fish are down? <laughs> and obviously, that's what Wisey had told him. Rather than when the chips are down, uh, oh, no, that's uh... not what we say here. We say when the fish are down. So there's... But that gives you... Uh, like That's what the dressing room was like. He had all these... Uh, almost like this nobility of Italian football in the dressing room. But there, you know, there were fart jokes and all sorts of other things going on in the in, in the dressing room that that made it a really fascinating and 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 uh, dynamic place. But at the same time, you know, a little bit later, just to continue on this this thing, we had uh, the, the probably the, the worst training ground 
in uh, in the Premier League at Arlington, uh, constantly windswept. But most importantly, it was rented from a university, and the university students uh, had uh, right of way, if you like, on a Wednesday afternoon. I think it was. So if I remember, I was interviewing Marcel Desai, another really crucial uh, signing. Um, to to the club and and served us so well and scored again one of the most important goals in our history in that Liverpool match in 2003 that led on to uh, Abramovich buying the club. But uh, back in the early part of his career, I interviewed him in the dressing room at uh, at uh, Harlington. There's mud on the floor and you know from the studs and everything like this. And it's a real old kind of municipal um, basic dressing room with you know old wooden slatted bench and a sort of a coat peg above and things I mean really like the sort of thing you get at a a really old-fashioned school and I'm sitting interviewing Marcel and he's been a bit long in the shower so it's gone into the afternoon and the students have right away three students spotty students from Imperial College walk in there take Marcel's a Prada suit off the hanger and throw it down. Some of it falls into the the mud and the studs and everything like that. <laughs> and he just looks at me and and just kind of shrugs and he's as if to say, "Yes, this is also Chelsea." You know, <laughs> that's what could happen. <laughs> kept them grounded, I think. Um, but uh, that, that's really quick on on Root Hillett, uh, Rick, because I, I think. He was maybe <clears throat> the first domino to fall for some of the rest of of these kind of key signings to come in. Perfectly uh, put. Yeah, could, could you could you maybe talk about the impact of that and, and kind of how it's maybe even still dominoing to this day? Uh, he was the highest status player that we had signed for a very very long while. Uh, you know, he he was also considering the things he'd won as a player, European footballer and European Cup and an absolute legend of the world game. Imagine that that, when we signed him, that was a headline, not just on the back pages of newspapers around the world, but on the front pages as well. That was the kind of impact it it would have had uh, in the media at the time. It also was a statement of intent. If Chelsea are going to buy Rude Hullet, who else are they going to buy? And so, you know, uh, if he's the manager... Who doesn't want to work for Rude Hullet? Who wouldn't want to learn their craft under the tutelage of, of Rude Hullet, for example? So that's why you have so many of those brilliant players coming over. Because And, and again, the same thing you could argue with Gianluca Viale when he, was a, when he succeeded Hullet. Uh, you had this, the cachet uh, of working with one of the best players uh, in the world. And I think that's we had this, this, these player managers, Hoddle, Pullet, Gianluca Viali in quick succession. And then you get to a different level, which I think is another step up, first with Ranieri, and then obviously much bigger with Jose Mourinho, of having the professional coaches. So we went from this sort of, um, if you like, playing catch-up with young, dynamic player managers to, okay, that's working, but maybe we need a little bit more experience now. Maybe we need a kind of uh, to start a, almost like a dynasty. And is Ranieri the man? Maybe turned out not. Is Mourinho the man? Uh, maybe turned out not. But we we kind of went from those uh, those younger men who were still contemporaries of the players that almost that we were trying to sign and trying to. Uh, impress upon to older hands that they still once thought were great uh, managers in in football circles. So the the sort of, if you like, the impetus, or the, or, or rather the uh, the calling changed, but it was still, uh, and particularly by then, you were going to work for Chelsea as a great club again, a club that anyone in the world would would want to play for. But, you know, the other thing I want to talk about with Hullet is that, of course, the importance of winning things. And we won the FA Cup in 1996-7. And um, we won it with 
uh, Roberto Di Matteo uh, scoring the fastest ever goal in the FA Cup final, and then a homegrown Eddie Newton scoring the second goal. And uh, two things about this: firstly, that we had the match won as soon as the two uh, coaches walked out in front of their teams because you had Brian Robson of Middlesbrough looking dishevelled like he was still recovering from the night before. And you had uh, Rude Hullet, this uh, elegant, um, urbane, dreadlocked black man walking out, marching out proudly in front of his Chelsea team with a beautiful rosette and that blue tie. And you're just thinking... This game's already over. So no wonder we scored <laughs> after 42 seconds. And uh, so I suppose the, that's, the other, that's the other thing. Oh, there is a great little story again about Wise, if, you, if, I, if I can put it in, about Roberto Di Matteo. Roberto Di Matteo's wife, uh, well, not wife, his sister, I should say, uh, is blind. And she was in attendance at Wembley on that day. And uh, so she had someone talking to her and telling her what um describing the game to her and uh, so she could only hear about her brother scoring this great goal and afterwards dennis wise was making a big joke about saying no 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 they told you wrong he didn't score at all God. <laughs> but um and of course it was just classic uh, dennis wise mischief but um uh, it was all done very amicably amicable and everything but you know, this uh, it felt like a rebirth. It felt because these, because of these young player managers, it just felt like there was uh, a verve that there hadn't been at the club since the sixties and seventies. So it's a really amazing time. Rick, do you, do you feel like the nineteen ninety eight ninety nine season, where was really kind of the the Last time you know we had a title challenge like that was 1955. Oh. Do you think this was a a kind of marked change in the direction to after all these players, after all these signings, after the money comes back into the club? This seemed like it was a a transition point that kind of again further pushed us down the path of getting to where we are today. Yes, and I think uh, I I think it's quite interesting that if you look at the current team, it's almost a mirror. Uh, image of the team back then in that you had uh, nowadays we have these best uh, best in their era young players, these teenagers the youngsters, I mean they really are the best in, in their age group and coupled with that we've got some senior players uh, who are really good but maybe past their best um, Back in the late 90s, it was the sort of the other way around. The senior players were brilliant, and the youngsters that we we brought in there were maybe not the best, but the chemistry worked nevertheless. You still had this great uh, mixture in there. And it's such a shame that we fell short uh, a, a couple of times, really, but 98-99 was the closest. And really, uh, if I think about that that season... We sort of, I think it was, I talked about having these young player managers and why we then moved on to uh, coaches with a bit more experience. And I think that was what they'd spotted was that at uh, the crucial moments in the season um, where someone a bit more experienced and a bit more, a bit stronger in their decision-making could have pushed us over the line. And there were, Fallings out. I mean, I think Gianluca Vialli found it really difficult to make that t transition from uh, from player uh, to coach, and there was there were problems with uh, between him and some of the people he'd been very close to, uh, like um, Gianfranco Zola and uh, and uh, Roberto Di Matteo, um, where he had become aloof, and they found Zola in particular, I think, found that very difficult. Uh, found the, the change in the in the relationship very difficult, but uh, yes, how disappointing! We'd won the cup uh, in '97. We'd won the Cup Winners' Cup in '98, the Super Cup the same year, the uh, League Cup. So we were back winning that silverware, but the league uh, was still eluding us. And if I mean anyone that was there, remembering this that fluky Steve Guppy 
uh, Leicester goal that kind of destroyed us. That was where our hearts sank. And I remember after that thinking, will we ever win the league again? Will I see us win the league in my lifetime? A very real possibility that we wouldn't because we didn't know how long this uh, 90s uh, resurgence was going to last. And I remember talking to a Liverpool friend of mine uh, he'd he'd seen them win the league loads of times, but not for a long time, of course, I can say now. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> at the time, uh, he's a really close friend of mine. And he said, he said, look, you'll, you'll have loads of seasons. He said, look, Chelsea are a great team. But he said, there, there will be a point during this season when you're going to win the league, when you'll just know that this team is much better than everyone else that they're competing with. And there is nothing that is going to stop them. He said, you'll just know it's a special feeling. It's the luck is going your way. It's the fact that the team always seems to have the answers. It's the fact that the coach has the answers. It's the fact that the supporters believe constantly. He said, but you'll just, you'll just know when that is correct. And, and funny enough, you know, five years later, um, I, was, I rang him up and I said, halfway through the 2004-05 season, I know exactly what you mean. I'm feeling it. I've never felt this before. We yeah. are going to win the league. <laughs> and I didn't feel that in 98, 99. Well, we didn't win the league that season. It was definitely, um, you know, put us into Europe for the, you know, 44 years after being denied entry into the inaugural <laughs> yeah. championship, which, you know, hey, time, what does that heal? We we don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Chelsea made the debut in Europe's premier competition in August 1999, and they put in a series of impressive performances en route to a quarterfinal tie against Barcelona. Yes. How do you think this made the team ready for what was a stunning run in the 2000s? Well, I think it's really interesting that, of course, Jody Morris was part of that Champions mm-hmm. League campaign. He played at the, the semi-final, and uh, he's one of the players I'm talking about. I, he's actually one of the best young players I've ever seen uh, in my time at, at Chelsea. Magnificent young player. And it unfortunately didn't work out for him at uh, at Chelsea. But what I think it did was it readied not just the squad, but the supporters and the whole club for an assault on Europe. And I think it... It was kind of a coming of age. Um, we hadn't we'd been in the Cup Winners Cup, but that's a completely different. You know, it's it's, uh, it's like the League Cup to the FA Cup. It's a minor competition in, in comparison. The pageantry, the pomp, the anthem, uh, the the stadiums that you visit, the teams that you face. It's all on a much higher level, and I think as supporters, you felt a responsibility to to rise to that occasion too. And for example, the first game of that campaign uh, at home against Milan was amazing because it was a nil-nil draw, but the football was incredible, remarkable game of football. So skillful, fluent, beautiful to watch. It was almost like we'd, we'd gone, we'd spent a, an hour and a half at an art gallery rather than a football match. <laughs> Um, but we afterwards, everyone was saying, my God, this Champions League football is incredible, isn't it? You know, what a beautiful introduction to, to, to that level of football. The other thing it taught you is that you can't go into the Champions League with any holes in the hull of your boat. That's mm-hmm. what gets found out. Uh, so if you make mistakes, they get punished. The fact that it was nil-nil against Milan, showed us that the team uh, was uh, right for that level, that we weren't pretenders, that we weren't interlopers, that we were actually deserved to, deserving of that place at the top table of football. And I think that was a fulfilment of the ambition of 95, that Marriott Accord that we talked about. Just five years later, they'd fulfilled that ambition i think that it felt like the plan was coming you know was working everything was falling into place so i think it gave everyone confidence the club supporters and the squad 
Well, and, and in the middle of all this, Rick, you know, Stanford Bridge is kind of being reborn as a fortress. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of work prior to, to you know, the, the Champions League runs in the 2000s, but, you know, the pitch owners kind of reestablishing themselves, um, Ken Bates ensuring that Chelsea, you know, essentially play at Stanford Bridge for forever and ever. Amen. Um, can you maybe talk about, you know, what's happening with the stadium at this point and, and kind of the reassurance that Chelsea fans are feeling uh, given some of the moves that are being made? Well, um, to, to talk about to Chelsea pitch owners, uh, I, was, I was a director of Chelsea pitch owners until a couple of years ago. And um, the, it came about, basically, it's an organisation that, that owns the, uh, the freehold on the land on which Stamford Bridge is built. So it's the bit that Ken Bates uh, didn't initially buy off the Mears family that they sold to developers that he won back in the early 90s. And the experience of that told Bates that he had to try and secure that in perpetuity so that no one else could sell it off again and that it would uh, basically would remain a, a, a football ground. So he set up this idea of a company that would pay back a loan with shareholders, uh, all of whom should be, um, football supporters, and he built in limitations so that no one could acquire too many shares and all sorts of things, lots of clever uh, things that would stop uh, carpetbaggers. And um, it was uh, really successful. Now, of course, what happened is that in, more recently, uh, the club was looking at exploring uh, avenues of moving away from Stamford Bridge to build a, a bigger stadium because our stadium is only a little over 41,000 uh, capacity. And on UEFA nights, it's even smaller than that. Now, in recent years, you've had West Ham, Tottenham, Arsenal. Uh, Liverpool's much bigger. Manchester United's much bigger. Everton are moving to a new ground. Lots of people are, are, will have attendances that dwarf Stamford Bridge. And as I've mentioned in our previous pods, uh, part of the personality, if you like, uh, the DNA of, Ch of Chelsea Football Club is to have huge crowds coming. You know, we've always had huge attendances at Stamford Bridge. So you can see the rationale, but it didn't go down well with the uh, CPO shareholders, certain misgivings that they had about um, how far away the club might move. Uh, and the upshot was that they rejected the bid that the club made to buy uh, or CPO back and to reunite the pitch with the club. So we're in a state now where a few years ago, brilliant new plans were devised to redevelop Stamford Bridge itself, but that would require the club to move out uh, from our ancestral home for three years, maybe four, um, those plans were put on hold because of a downturn in the economy, a difficulty to raise cash. So that's currently on hold. And um, we're sort of a bit in limbo because we're not redeveloping any of the existing stands. And we're not, uh, at the moment, planning to build this magnificent new stadium that has been talked about. And as far as we know, there are no plans either to acquire a site nearby and build a stadium from scratch there. So we're we're all sort of waiting for news, and, and nothing is there's nothing new around at the moment, unfortunately. Well, that will quite nicely tee us up into heading into our last section. Obviously, it's about the the Roman Abramovich area, which is, you know it's hard to you know, at this point, untangle him out of what is Chelsea Football Club as we know it uh, mm. today. So we'll take our last break. A huge thank you to the sponsor for, for financially supporting the show. And like I said, when we're back, um, we're just going to be counting trophies, all right? Counting dollars, <laughs> just just making it rain with silverware. Um, we, need, we need more than two hands, Brandon. We need more than two hands. It's, it's a group effort, Dan. You're, you're sure you are. You're sure right. So uh, we will be right back. 
All right. Well, it's uh, appropriately has taken us a long time to get here because while modern day Chelsea really revolves around Roman Abramovich, um, you know, his takeover in 2003, you know, along with TV rights and, and the explosion of the Premier League as well, a lot has happened up to this point. It is not an accident um, <laughs> that Roman wanted to buy Chelsea. No. We all know that it was teetering on a on a very fine margin, whether or not it was going to happen or not, um, you know, based upon European qualification. But, you know, 2003, he changes. And according to most media and other teams, ruins football forever, Rick. <laughs> Single-handedly has ruined football by buying Chelsea Football Club. Why? I mean, Why? What what happened back in 03? What was it like for you as a fan and being so close to the club? You know, obviously having to secure Champions League was is literally the requirement for him to buy Chelsea. Otherwise, he was looking at other clubs in London. But it was us. We were the chosen ones. Well, to get, to talk about when it actually happened, um, I received started receiving texts from people. Are you listening to the radio? Uh, I think it was uh, BBC Radio Five Live that first reported that they'd heard that uh, a Russian billionaire could be buying Chelsea Football Club, <laughs> which is quite a, quite a surprise. So immediately I messaged all my friends and we're all kind of listening and trying to work out what's going on and making calls, have you heard? And then uh, I'd, so that, uh, and then when we hear it, we, you just want to know who is this bloke? Is he... Uh, does he like football? What's the what's the story? You know, is he uh, presumably he wants to keep a football club there, and he's not buying the stadium, but he wants to you know, just build blocks of flats or something. Um, and of course, we're completely reassured on all of those all of those fronts. Um, and you're just thinking, well, I mean, personally, I, I it's difficult for me to sort of say what I think from a supporter to separate what I think from uh, what I knew inside the club that, I mean, I'd known that towards the end of 2003, the 2002-03 uh, season, when we played Liverpool in that match, you know, the multi-million pound match to decide who would uh, be in the Champions or have a Champions League qualifying place for 2003-04, uh, I'd known that uh, Trevor Birch, I, I knew Trevor Birch quite well. And um, I'd known that we were in real financial straits had we not drawn that match. If we'd lost to Liverpool and not finished in the, the Champions League place, I knew that there would be changes. We would sell off some of our highest uh, salaried players, that there'd be a period of austerity because there were loans that had been taken out that would have required repayment and we it would have been a struggle to to meet those without the finite the income from uh, the champions league so marcel desai's equalizer is again as i said one of the most important uh, goals in our history we only needed to draw the fact that jesper gromke put the ball over and and Darcel, marcel desai scored it means that jesper gromke's assist is more important than the winner that he got in the same game. So when you hear people talk about Gronkia's goal, I say, no, Gronkia's assist was more important. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so we were in the Champions League. Romeo Abramovich is looking for to invest in, in, in a club, preferably London, and um, uh, he's looking at that. And that is, if we hadn't been in there, Roman Abramovich wouldn't have come in and we wouldn't have had anything like the supercharged glory years that we've had since he took over. And I'm forever grateful that, uh, that he did come in and he uh, injected so much into to what we've been able to savour uh, over the last 17 years. I mean, we are the most successful club in, in, in Britain over the past 20 years. And I never thought I would be able to say that. <laughs> We've 
always been as a as a London club in the shadow of uh, Arsenal, and uh, as far as England's concerned, Manchester United and and Liverpool historically, Manchester City now. But we've outstripped them all in the last two decades. And that is a remarkable achievement. Whatever you think, you know, you say about ruining football. Well, I'm a historian. I like ruins. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, and I I think from the inside, having worked for the club since 93, I also have to give credit to his, to Abramovich's leadership, stewardship of the club. I think that when we've addressed major issues from the club's past, for example, we had a terrible badge um, from in the 80s and 90s uh, that wasn't part of our heritage. It was really badly drawn. It was embarrassing. Uh, one of the first things that Abramovich picked up on, I had a, a, a call from Peter Kenyon saying, what do you think? Can you talk to us about the history of the badge? Because we're getting so many people saying, now that we've got uh, a new owner, can we go back to the old badge? So I did a big descriptor for him of what the old badge was and the history and everything like that. They said, that's a major priority for us. You know, so hearts and minds winning. Uh, as far as uh, I mean, he's always been extreme. Abramovich and his people have always been really strong as well on anti-racism, uh, on social responsibility, uh, charitable foundations, being a good citizen. And I think that is really important. It's made Chelsea have leadership in a lot of those areas. You see what's happening with some of the anti- anti-Semitism uh, campaigning that takes place. But he's... He's and that this comes from him. This is him leading the way in, in that way. He's also respectful of the club's tradition. I worked on there's a not many people know this, but there's a music venue in, at Stamford Bridge called Under the Bridge, and I researched all of the photos that went in, inside. There's 165 uh, British musicians, brilliant, beautiful black and white photos in there. Um, it's the biggest standing exhibition of British music photography, funnily enough. But when I was working on it with a person that uh, Roman had brought in, uh, an American, funnily enough, he was saying, we sat down for several meetings and he was saying, tell me about the culture of the club and, you know, Roman really wants it to feel like a London vibe, a Chelsea vibe. So I was talking about music hall and it could be, you know, uh, swinging 60s, it could be like a 60s go-go club or something that he really liked the music hall idea. So it was done out like a kind of Victorian, like under a, under the, under a Victorian bridge. Now, the attention to detail that Roman insisted upon, you know, oh yeah, it's got to, it's got to look like those rivets like under that bridge. It's got to be, it's the best uh, fit out you could possibly imagine. And that's the attention to detail that he's brought to the whole of the football club. Cobham, look at, the incredible uh, plans and how they've seen that. Everything is exactly as Roman wanted. It's top quality everywhere. And that that's his life, obviously, because he can afford it. But he's, he didn't need to bring that to Chelsea, but he has. On the pitch, off the pitch, he's a winner. So, Rick, those are, I think, all wonderful examples, I think, of how Roman has, has changed the club and pushed us forward. Any other anecdotes that you can think about in terms of how he, you know, maybe has changed uh, football or maybe kind of humorous things that, uh, you know, the, the casual supporter or maybe someone who's just getting into supporting Chelsea uh, ne- needs to know uh, that would uh, continue to expand their understanding of the man? Well, I, lots of things like you will find that um, he, he watches the, he's desperate to watch the game wherever. So even on his his yacht uh, that was original, I think it was called the Big Blue, Le Grand Bleu, I think it was. Um, oh, funny enough, when we played in Monaco, in the we reached the semi-finals of the Champions League in uh, obviously in two thousand and three four uh, under Claudio Ranieri, and um, a few of us 
who were out there were thinking, oh, someone said, oh, uh, Abramovich's yacht is moored in the bay. Should we all go down and see him? <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're thinking, a yacht, how big can a yacht be? So we wandered down to the marina. My God, it was the size of a small village. It was, uh, we walked from one end to the other. I think it took us five or ten minutes. <laughs> they had a helicopter on it. People were cycling from one end of it to the other while we were watching. Um, and you're thinking, oh my God, what a completely different lifestyle this bloke leads. And then you hear of other supporters who've been, say, in New York, uh, and they're sitting down, they're desperate to watch the Chelsea game against someone, and uh, there's a kind of three people walk in, um, making a, a bit of a fuss around them. Turns out it's Roman Abramovich and two of his uh, side men, <laughs> his bodyguards, for want of a better phrase. And they sit down amongst everyone else, and he buys everyone drinks, and he's up punching the air when we score, and all these kinds of things. You know, he is... He, really rapidly became a hugely committed supporter. And I think um, he was, as far as football was concerned, I think he was like a, a, an empty vessel waiting to be, to be filled up. And once he bought Chelsea, Chelsea filled him up. So he's full of Chelsea now. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes, goes without saying that we've had some ups and downs and a lot of managerial changeover and, you know, some of the things that, you know, are a part of the history, but certainly don't uh, undergird the success. I mean, Rick, th- there are a couple of special shout outs over the last, uh, mm. you know, you know, handful of seasons, the 2004 five title, which is the first in 50 years, obviously oh. uh, the 2009 10 double, which is the first ever for, for Chelsea. And then, and then the champions league, obviously being the kind of pinnacle moment, uh, can you talk about any you know specific memories uh, in regards to those kind of three major inflection points? Well, certainly, two thousand and four five. I think just Mourinho uh, again, charismatic, uh, incredibly competent. Um, but more than that, I think you would call him competent now. But back then, I think he was really was a special coach. Uh, I was sat in a conference with David Moyes after we played Everton, and David Moyes said that the substitutions that went on between the two teams, he said it was like playing chess. Because he said, I thought I was being clever making a substitution in reaction to one of his. And then I realised that it was a trap because he quickly (laughs) made another substitution and completely ruined my game plan. Now, whether or not, uh, Mourinho is capable of that now, I doubt. I think we had the best of him, and the best was easily good enough. It was beautiful to watch that that team and how he worked out that Idaho Johnson was the key man, form an open diamond, get him to drop deep. Teams couldn't deal with that. Duff and Robin on the wings, glorious football. McAlealy just clicking away in the middle there. I mean, it was just a magnificent team. And, of course, we win, We won the league. Frank Lampard scored both goals when we won the league at Bolton. And I remember uh, coming out of the press conference afterwards and the team coach was just outside the stadium and Joe Cole was standing on top of the, 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 the coach and <laughs> the team coach. Um, and John Terry was... Uh, looking out of the hatch as well and they were just dancing around with the supporters and uh, just an incredible sight to see uh, that, all the Chelsea fans all swarming around the coach and them out on on the top Uh, and just beautiful memories of of all of that and of course, you know, afterwards McAlealy being given a penalty and missing at the final game of that season, but you just felt like it was a a really, really special team, special squad, special coach, special owner. The whole Chelsea project had come together spectacularly. Uh, 2009-10, um, oddly enough, 
Um, Carlo Ancelotti, completely different personality, very laid back, famous for his arched single eyebrow, the left eyebrow. <laughs> you know, people love that. Everyone talks about it. Um, but around 2000, and, oh, it's around winter time, people start to have their doubts and thinking, ah, is he the man? Are we going to win the league? You know, it felt terrible because we hadn't won it for three years. <laughs> four, sorry, four four years. So he's gone, my God, are we ever going to win it again? You know, um, uh, but being seasoned in how titles are won, uh, we soon recognised that when we came to, I think it was around February, March, things started to turn around and then we started to just spank teams. You know, we've beaten them seven goals and then eventually eight goals, Wigan at home. <laughs> You know, um, any more emphatic way that you could win the league? We needed to win. Uh, we needed to win and outscore Manchester United on the last uh, day of the season, and we win at eight nil. And um, <laughs> you know, you've got this. He's got this whole thing of Drogba chasing the golden boot and having a, uh, a hissy fit about um, uh, uh, wanting to take a penalty. And Frank Lampard says, "No, I'm the penalty taker." And then he eventually, you know, eventually there are enough to go round that he is given a penalty, <laughs> gets his hat trick, wins the golden boot. That brilliant celebration with him and Maluda over at the corner flag where he's playing the guitar. Maluda joins in playing the drums, and it was just like there were so many moments to just savor and think. Well, this is why I love Chelsea. For moments like that, little moments of genius and ingenuity, fun that just made it beautiful to to be part of and of course doing the double for the first time for people that don't know the double in England is the league and FA Cup uh, there isn't the, the league and the league cup isn't really a double uh, so that is the, the we were only the seventh team to do that so that's the other thing what you about know, Mourinho's what about Mourinho's community shield league cup <laughs> <laughs> so you know do you know what is interesting even in our even in our worst moments we were we knew when a trophy wasn't really a trophy you know yeah. we never we won in that 1986 uh and 1990 we won this very badly regarded uh trophy the four members cup and no one ever talked about that. No one ever bragged about that. <laughs> so to brag about the community shield, uh, no, 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 not something we do. And then, of course, 2012. Well, you could argue that it was the it was a fitting closure to that generation: the Czech, uh, Terry Lampard, uh, Jogba generation, that era. Um, and that they really, it, it should have happened in, in 2008, possibly 2009, when uh, the referee of Arebo robbed us in the semi-final. Uh. So we've had some near misses. Um, and it was almost like someone felt uh, pity for us. And so we only go and do the biggest upset, one of the biggest upsets in Champions League <laughs> history by beating the favourites uh, on their own ground. Uh, having been one nil down, and of course I'm not even talking about the semi-final where we were two nil down and one man down at at, uh, at Barcelona, and we still get the the uh, the goals that we need to to progress to the final. So all in all, those were just magical, magical moments. And um, I was lucky enough. You can see it on YouTube. Actually, I was lucky enough after the 2012 penalty shootout, and of course Drogba. Uh, you know, Paul Dutton, the club statistician, is standing next to me because we're standing. We're not sitting watching the penalty shootout. And it's Drogba. And we're thinking, oh, my God, 2008 sent off, couldn't take a penalty. What's going on? Anyway, I said, no, 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 no. Have faith. He's going to score. Paul's shaking me by the shoulder saying, no, no, his run-up's too short. And I shouted, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Few minutes later, we're smoking cigars and in, in enjoying uh, Didier having uh, scored that goal, and uh, the celebrations were just unbelievable. And uh, you know, the fact is that possibly a lot of us thought that would be the zenith, uh, and that you know, would we ever be uh, a major 
threat to the league title again. Well, we've won it twice since then. It's just a, <laughs> it just keeps going on and on. We, we are a trophy winning machine. And that is the only difference between now and uh, our, our long history going back to 1905. We've always been popular. We've always got huge crowds and sold out. We've always had fantastic players, entertainers. We've always had a story wrapping around us, but it's only in the last 20, 30 years that we've been a trophy-winning club. Well, Rick, what a fitting end to this three-part series about the history of Chelsea Football Club. Um, so enlightening, so insightful. <laughs> Uh, this will be required listening for all <laughs> Chelsea fans, new and old. Um, so thank you for everything you do. Um, Pleasure. Thank just you. in general. Uh, and so Chelsea fans, go support Rick. If you're over in London, do the walking tours. Um, he's got books out there. We'll, we'll kind of tidy everything up, but uh, don't sleep. Uh, good Twitter follow as well. So uh, again, just a huge thank you, Rick, for all of your time and wisdom no, that you've shared you. with us. Great stuff. Thank you. All right. Well, last plug. Go back if you missed it. Episode one and two are live as well. 1905 to 2020. 115 years of history in the making. And we've only just begun. There's so much more history to come. And we are so excited to finally be along uh, for that ride and enjoying it as well. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>